So please take your Bibles once again and turn to Jonah chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I just want to say I'm, I'm very grateful to Sinclair Ferguson for a lot of the insights I'm going to be sharing with you today. Uh, as we look at Jonah, the end of chapter 1 and, and chapter 2. But before we uh, look at the Word of God, let's pray. Lord, we uh, come as a, a very needy people, needing to, to hear from you. But God, we, we oftentimes maybe don't even realize how needy we are. So we pray for your Holy Spirit to work uh, and to speak to us through your word today. God, speak to us in a way that we would hear in a way that we would understand, we pray, God, that you would uh, that you would really uh, get through to us, Lord. Even changing not only our minds and giving us understanding where we need that, but Lord, even changing our will as well. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, as we turn back to the book of Jonah again, there's no question that as we come to the end of chapter one that Jonah is not where he needed to be with the Lord. Um, he was, of course, sitting in the belly of this huge fish after God coming to him and saying, Jonah, I want you to speak my word. And, and uh, Jonah refuses to do so and not only refuses, but then seeks to run from the presence of the Lord and, of course, gets on a boat and, and is in a great storm. And so... Now he is in the belly of a fish where he spent three days and three nights. And I'm sure he's had much time to reflect upon his experiences and the things that have gone on as well as to pray as we, we see Jonah's prayer in, in chapter two. Now, one thing, if you've not picked this up yet, I just want to say this very clearly, that Jonah is in a state of spiritual decline. I mean, I think that's rather obvious from the account and the story um, but that doesn't mean that Jonah is completely rebelling against the Lord. There are large areas in his life where he is prepared to obey the Lord. But like all of us, within him, he has unconsciously built sort of a, a spiritual comfort zone, uh, a, a sense of, of uh, comfort zone of personal obedience, where he is willing to follow the Lord so far but yet no farther. And while he may not state that, you know, and I, um, it, it seems to be the case. And I say that because as we looked at Second Kings, we saw that here's a man of God who was willing to proclaim the word of the Lord. So it's not that he has always uh, disobeyed the Lord. But in this case, it seems that he has said, God, I'm not willing to go as far as what you're calling me to do. So without warning, God challenges Jonah's comfort zone. In other words, God challenged the level of his obedience with which Jonah was personally comfortable. And he demanded from Jonah a level of obedience, which obviously made Jonah feel distinctively uncomfortable, to say the least. And as a result, we see in Jonah these layers, or maybe you call them levels, I don't know, of spiritual resistance that begins to come to the surface. And therefore, we see Jonah running from the Lord. So where Jonah saw himself as an obedient servant of God, he was beginning to discover that there were hidden layers of resistance to, what, to God and what he wanted for his life. And instead of responding to God's commands to these new levels of obedience, Jonah refused God, which is a very 
dangerous place. And the story makes it rather obvious that Jonah would have rather died than be submissive to God. And as God is challenging Jonah's personal spiritual boundaries, Jonah at the same time, as I said, is seeking to limit God. And these, this is a very relevant topic for our day. You know, are there not some who would say that they are Christians and, and I would believe who, who are, but like Jonah, they turn their hearts away from the word of the Lord and from the presence of the Lord. They ignore God's word by neglecting it daily and they live their lives as if God is distant and irrelevant to their lives. And when we try to put limits on God, even if we have not neglected his word to that extent, but we have said, God, yes, I, I, I feel the conviction of your Holy Spirit and I will do this. But God, what you're asking here is too much. I just cannot do that, Lord. And what we don't understand is, is whenever we seek to put limits on God, which is sort of a joke in many sense, what we may not realize is that it's not just in that area in which we are outright refusing to obey the Lord that begins to fall apart, but our entire lives begin to fall to pieces spiritually, even in those areas in which we appear to be obeying the Lord. And so we find Jonah at the end of chapter one in spiritual decline. But you know what? Praise God, that's not the end of the story. There's a chapter two. And in chapter two, we see what happens in the life of a servant of God who by God's grace and mercy is lifted up from that sense of spiritual decline and begins to experience a sense of spiritual renewal, a spiritual revival, sort of a spiritual awakening in, in his heart. And so God pursues Jonah through the storm and the waves and, and even the fish. But what God is doing is pursuing, pursuing Jonah so that he may restore and revive him. And once again, use Jonah even to a much greater degree than he had ever done before. You know, it's often been said, and, and never forget this, okay? It's often been said that God must first wound a man deeply before he uses him greatly. That God must first wound a man deeply before he uses him greatly. And that's very true. If you go back through the scriptures, you see that oftentimes God takes his, his men, his women, even young people through these dark places, you know, and uh, takes them sort of to the end of themselves before he can use them greatly. And that's what God does with Jonah and what God still does with his church today. And so as we come to the second chapter of Jonah, uh, I would agree with Sinclair Ferguson that what we see here are the characteristics of spiritual renewal and revival in the lives of God's people. It provides for us a description of the distinguishing marks of the work of the Holy Spirit. And as we look at this passage, it's meant to evoke in us uh, to cry out to God that he might revive us again in the midst of the years that we have walked with him. Because as you may know, you know, as we walk with the Lord, we can draw closer to him. But sometimes uh, as we walk with the Lord for many years, we can become comfortable and we can have a sense in which we have created our own sort of personal comfort zone. And where we said, God, I will serve you and I will do this, but I'll go this far and no further. 
And so uh, we must listen as we look at these five characteristics of spiritual renewal. But before we look at that, I do want to say that it's important that we not only understand these five characteristics, but that we may long for them in our lives. And I, I would say this, and also long for them in our fellowship here at Kirk of the Plains, that... Uh, that we might be a people, a revived people that are willing to do the Lord's will no matter what it is that he asks. And I would say this to parents that are here today. As you're looking and wondering, you know, I wonder how I can gauge, you know, where my child is with the Lord. These are things to look for. Not only that, but I would even say these are things to pray for. Uh, our children, but also for ourselves and for our church as well. So what what does it mean? What does it look like when God is beginning to work in the life of a believer uh, to sort of reawaken them in essence? Well, first of all, he humbles them under his hand. And I've sort of already alluded to that when I've talked about how God must wound a man deeply before he can use him greatly. And we see that in Jonah in verses five and six, you know, God is is putting him in physical danger. We see that the waters closed in over me. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I mean, you can almost picture that in your mind as Jonah is being thrown overboard and he hits the waters and the waves, you know, are going. Eventually they they just quieted down. But still there for a little bit, he's sort of sinking down and the waves are going and he's just going down and down and down and down. And he has these weeds that are wrapped around his head. I think that's interesting that the scripture puts that uh, detail in there. But he goes down so far that it, it describes it as he goes to the roots of the mountain. And then it says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And and Jonah even describes him as being caught in the pit. His life was hanging by a thread. He was in in great uh, physical danger. But the physical danger was only the outward circumstances that were the result of a greater work that God was seeking to do in Jonah's heart. Jonah was being drowned under the mighty hand of God so that he might be humbled. Jonah recognized this in verse 1. Look at verse 1. You see that Jonah prayed to the Lord. Now, it's interesting that he would pray to the Lord. In your Bibles, if the word Lord is all capitalized, and kids, you can remember this, if you see a capital L, a capital O, a capital R, a capital D, that's really uh, God's covenant name. You can't read Hebrew, but they're sort of giving us a hint in the English that this is a special name for God. And so uh, Jonah cries out to the God who keeps his promises. He cries out to the covenant-keeping God, and, uh, and he recognizes that these circumstances come from uh, a hand of divine correction upon his life. Look at verses four or 3 and 4. He says, For you cast me into the deep. Into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. And so Jonah recognizes that this is God's God that's doing this. God has a purpose in what he's doing. So in the midst of all the physical harm, what Jonah clearly sees is God's hand at work in his life. Even more pressing on Jonah than the physical dangers is the spiritual condition of his soul. Namely, that he, or Jonah, was being banished from the presence 
of the Lord or being driven away from the presence of the Lord. Now, the picture here with that word uh, driven away or banished, depending on your translation, is the idea of a king who you come before the king and the king banishes you from his land. He says, no more can you be in my kingdom. And so he casts the person out, not only from his land, but from his court and even from his presence, sort of saying, if I ever see you again, you, you will die. And as such, Jonah feels overwhelmingly crushed by God's righteous correcting hand. And I think it's interesting that what Jonah wanted to do was to flee from the presence of the Lord. And God gave him exactly what he wanted, not in the way that he wanted, but he gave him what he wanted. So up to this point in time, Jonah was full of a sense of spiritual pride, so much so that he thought he could tell God no and get away with that. He thought he could still be a prophet of God and yet harbor rebelliousness in his heart against the Lord. I think it's interesting that when Jonah talks to the sailors, he talks about that he is uh, he's an Israelite. He's a Hebrew. You know, he worships the God who made all these things. And so he saw himself as a prophet of God and it seemed to not cause him any uh, anguish that he was rebelling against God. You know, even that it didn't even bother him that he was rebelling against God. And so in his life, there was sort of this sense of duplicity, this sense in which what we would say is he was two-faced. You know, he was acting as if he was a man of God, but yet he wasn't acting as a man of God. And I think that's good for us, brothers and sisters, that we ought to ask, where is our hearts with God? Is there a sin, any sense in which we are refusing to do what God is telling us to do? Is there any sense in our lives in which we are glad to profess that we are Christians and yet we are living in known sin? And it doesn't seem to bother us. The more we sort of harbor these secret sins, the less and less it seems to disturb us. Is there any part of us that is seeking to squelch the voice of the Holy Spirit that is bringing conviction upon us for our rebellion? But one thing we see with Jonah is now for the first time, we see Jonah as utterly and totally without excuse for his disobedience to God. You see God is bringing Jonah to the end of himself. He's actually sort of bringing him back to the beginning of his spiritual existence where, as the New Testament would call it, where he was born again. You know, and remember how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, when he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. You see, that's what the word of the Lord does. As the word of the Lord comes to us, and, and we hear that word when we, when we first become believers, we hear that word and, and we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We understand that we are sinners. We thought that we weren't such bad people before that. But as the word comes to us, we really realize that we are, are people that are without excuse. That we can't blame anybody else for our lives. That we actually stand guilty before God. And... And so, therefore, we deserve whatever punishment that God would give us. And so, what do we do as we become believers? We cry out to God. Now, kids, for you that have grown up in the church, the temptation can be to think that you're really not that bad. You actually have grown up in a Christian home, 
And so you look at your life and you compare yourself with other kids, maybe that you know at school or your neighbors or whoever that are not Christians. And you think, I don't do what they do. And there can be within you a sense of spiritual pride. But even in that, God can deal with that kind of spiritual arrogance and pride. And he can show you, you really are not as good as what you think you are. And so God does that with Jonah. He brings him back to that humbling point, much like it was when we first came to faith in Jesus Christ. You know, and he humbles us because he seeks to use us uh, in our lives. And, and so in God's presence, Jonah admits his, the faults in his life. And that's always the beginning of spiritual awakening, a sense in which we come before the Lord and we pray, Lord, I know, honestly, as I look at the condition of my heart, as you have revealed that to me, that I am nothing. But please create something in me. Please use me, O oh God, for your honor and glory. And may that be the prayer for us for Kirk of the Plains. May we say, Jesus, Kirk of the Plains is nothing we're a small group of people. We, we, we don't even have a building yet. Not that you have to have a building to minister, but Lord, we are just nothing. Please use us to your glory. You can't have spiritual awakening without humility. You can't have spiritual pride without humility. And you can't have spiritual self-sufficiency without humility. And you can even have arrogance in the face of the word of God without humility but God humbles us that he might exalt us. But until we are humbled under God's mighty hand, as Peter tells us, and believe it or not, Peter ought to know. Wasn't he the, the apostle that kept putting his foot in his mouth uh, because he acted like he was something? But until we are humbled under God's mighty hand, we will never know what it is to be exalted at the right time. Listen to the words from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. God opposes, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Well, out of that sense of humility before the Lord, of being humble before God, sort of flows all these other characteristics, and, um, and the second of which is, uh, thirsting for the presence of God. A thirst for God flows out of a sense of being brought low. As the Lord brought Jonah down and down and down into humility, so he lifted him up. Look at verse 6. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. God awakened and renewed Jonah, and because of God's grace in Jonah's life, Jonah not only felt humbled under the mighty hand of God, but he came, became thirsty for the presence of God. Jonah is finally doing that which he was called to do early on in chapter 1. Remember when the captain came down into the boat and he said, Man, we are going to die. Please arise, get up, call out to your God. Pray that we might be delivered. And Jonah refuses to do so. There's no mention at all in the text that Jonah cries out to the Lord. But here, in the midst of this trial and this difficulty, we see we read in Jonah 2 where he cries out to the Lord. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, 
and you heard my voice. So Jonah does cry out to the Lord because he has been humbled and he seeks once again to be in the presence of the Lord. And see what he prays in verse 4. He said, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. And then in verse 7, he sort of repeats that same thing. He goes, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Now, look at this. Here he is, he's in the Mediterranean Sea somewhere, riding around in the belly of this great fish, and he's thinking about the temple of God. And the reason why he's thinking about the temple in Jerusalem is, is that that is the only place in the known universe where God has promised to make his presence known. Now that's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the special presence of God was promised in Jerusalem and the temple, and nowhere else. You know, it, it is true that, that God is omnipresent, that God is everywhere. And even a Jew knew that. I mean, even as Jonah sought to flee from the presence of God, he had to know that he could not get away from God. I mean, we see that in the Psalm, in Psalm 139, for example. But if you wanted to meet with God and know that your sins were forgiven, the only place on earth that you could go was the temple of Jerusalem because it was there that the priest would offer the appropriate sacrifice to God for your sins and then pronounce the blessing of forgiveness. The Lord's face is turned toward you. The priest would let you know that God's countenance is smiling upon you because your sins have been taken away. And that's what Jonah desires. He wants to be back in the presence of God he, that he had been fleeing. And that's always the evidence that God is beginning to awaken his people. They begin to hunger and thirst for more of his presence. They want to know what it is for God to come down as he does in the Old Testament and be enthroned in the praises of his people. His people sing as those who want to draw out the heart of God whom they admire. God's people want to be full, so they thirst for the presence of God. But they not only thirst for his presence, but they hunger for his word. Now, this point isn't really stated uh, in so many words in this text. Okay, It's sort of uh, strongly implied, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. I'm not making this up. I'm not trying to make the text say something that it doesn't. But if you look at the, the context of chapter 2, you see in chapter 1 that, um, that Jonah is fleeing from the word of the Lord. God calls to him, tells him what to do, and Jonah doesn't want to think about that. You know, he's, as a matter of fact, he wants to be out of the presence of the Lord. And yet now, as he begins to pray, and if you have a good study Bible, it may show you this in the footnotes or, or make some references to all the place. But you'll see that as Jonah prays to the Lord, he is praying scripture. That, that, that most of chapter 2 is, is either Jonah directly quoting scripture or he is echoing what scripture says. A lot of it from the Psalms. But, but from the different scriptures. And I'm sorry, I don't have the time. It would take us forever because there's hardly a word here in this, in this prayer that Jonah gives that really comes from Jonah. This is really a scripture. And so what we see here is a, a man who once ran from the word of God who now has a mind that is flooded with the holy scriptures. 
And he is holding on to God by the means of his word. And he can't get enough of God's word. He's hungry for that. And that's what happens whenever God awakens us that we cannot get enough of the word of God, whether it be to hear sermons preached or whether it is to, to we just can't wait to be in our personal quiet time and our worship time to worship the Lord or to gather with our family or we're listening to sermons on the Internet or teaching on the Internet. We just can't get enough of it. It's like we're hungering for that. You know, and I've heard uh, seminary professors and, and other Christians that I know that, that have the opportunity to go around the world and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and some of my friends and stuff have gone to places in the world that are very remote. That when you come to church, you, you basically come to this little shack of a place. Maybe, for example, in Africa or someplace like that. And the people walk barefoot for sometimes days to get to this church. And they come and, and, and these people that were telling me these stories would say they would stand up and they would begin to preach. And the people were just like listening to the word of God. They could not get enough. And the preacher said, I would get done preaching the sermon and I would go and I would sit down and the people would say, more, more, preach us the word of God. And so in one case I was thinking of, the, the, the man thought, well, okay, I, I have another sermon. I thought there might be another service, so I brought another sermon. And so he stood up and he preached that sermon and he sat down and they said, more, more. They could not get enough of the word of God. And the poor man says, I was sort of running out of things to say, you know, but they were just so hungry for the word of God. And you see, that's what happens when God begins to work in our hearts to awaken us. There's a sense in which we see that he humbles us by his hand. He gives us a thirst to be in his presence and a hunger for his word, but also a sense of being consecrated or maybe even being reconsecrated to the will of God as well. Look at verse 9. Jonah says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Now, what's Jonah saying here when he says this about vows? We don't do vows much today in the church. We do membership vows and, and things like that, but we don't quite apply it in the same way that we see in the Old Testament. He, but what he's saying is that when you vow, you... you um, you say, God, that which I said I will do, I promise to keep, even if it means that I must die. There was a sense in which uh, he would keep the promise that he has said. And so now here is Jonah, who has been called by God and has vowed that he would be a prophet of God and he would proclaim the word of God. He says, God, I will now do that. He says, I will uh, turn from my sin and my disobedience and I will rise and I will keep your commands and I will obey your word and I will do it. Now, how do we keep that today? Well, there's s simple ways. I mean, even take the Bible and just even take like the Ten Commandments. You know, and, and in essence, when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and we say we believe you to be our Savior and our Lord, we're saying to him, I will obey your word. I will do that which you have commanded me to do. I will turn from the ways of sin and and just take even the Ten Commandments. And we could go down through that and we could read each one of those commandments and 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 to have a heart that's consecrated to the will of the Lord is to say, Lord, you know, when I read those things that you forbid, I will decisively reject those things in my life. I will, I will seek to, 
to not do those things. Lord, but those things that you command, I will embrace and I will do wholeheartedly. And that's what Jonah's doing. He's saying, I am in the belly of the well. I have rebelled against you. But Lord, I once again consecrate myself to do your will. And in the belly of the great fish, he is someone who has begun to be restored. Now, he's not perfect. Neither are we. And, and the remainder of the book reminds us that Jonah isn't perfect because even later on, he still gets angry with the Lord and what he's doing. He will continue to struggle with sin the re- remainder of his life as we do. But still, there's a sense of commitment of not wanting to do my will, but Lord, to do your will. And then fifth and finally, um, as the Lord begins to awaken us in our spirit, we become concerned with seeing the salvation of the Lord. Look at verse uh, 8. He said, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. You know, before, Jonah could care less for those who worshipped vain idols. For example, the Ninevites. He, he didn't care about them. He didn't care whether the word of God came to them. As a matter of fact, he didn't want the word of God to come from them because he's afraid that they might repent. Jonah would have rather stayed within that that spiritual comfort zone that he had and stayed in the Holy Land than to go to Nineveh and and preach the gospel to them. Even when Jonah was on the ship, I think it's interesting that while he said that he believed in the true and the living God, there wasn't much concern that he showed for these men, let alone their, their spiritual state. Even though in spite of Jonah, God worked and proclaimed himself. But now Jonah is a man who's come to realize not only his need of salvation, but also to be concerned for others. I think John Calvin was correct when he said that the fish became a sort of hospital for Jonah in which he was healed and revived and strengthened in spiritual service. There was a sense in which God was doing a a work in the heart of this man as he sat in the, the belly of this fish for three days. And so Jonah, now being humbled by God's hand and seeing that the salvation comes from the Lord, is like the Apostle Paul saying, I am the chief of sinners. And when that happens, when we see ourselves really as we are, then there becomes a great concern for others and their spiritual condition. And that's what what he says in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. In other words, they are forsaking the grace that could be theirs. And Jonah is full of compassion. And because he knows that their only hope of salvation comes to them and the Lord. It's like one of my uh, favorite hymns, Rock of Ages. It says, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Now, why do we hide myself in thee? Because thou must save and thou alone. Only God can save us. Only he can hide us. So the God who had spoken to Jonah and pursued him in the wind and the storm and sent the great fish in chapter one is now the God in chapter two who commands the fish who now vomits Jonah out on dry land. Kids, I know that's sort of gross. But he did. He vomited Jonah out. And, the word, and then it says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. But this time, Jonah will do whatever God tells him to do. God had broken through that comfort zone, dealt with the, the disobedience, and awakened his servant. 
brothers and sisters, we are in a great need of these qualities in our lives as in, in, in our church as well. May this be a prayer that God would so work these things in our lives that we would have that kind, that God would humble us, that God would give us a thirst for him, that God would give us a desire for his word, that there would be a sense in which we recommit ourselves to his will and that there would be a desire to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, I've walked with the Lord for a lot of years. I've been a Christian for over 40 years now. And I know the struggles of my own heart. I know the struggles and I know the times when I have lived the duplicitous life. And you stand here and you hear these words and you think, oh, but what hope do we have? Well, we have the hope that comes from our Lord and Savior who didn't spend three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, but three days and three nights in the earth. Only that Savior arose again from the dead and he is living and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and he intercedes for us. He is praying for us. So let us be a people that call out to him and pray that he would do such a mighty work in our lives that at least to some measure that we would begin to see these things become visible, visible in, our, in our lives personally and in our homes and in our church family, then and only then will Andover hear and then and only then will Andover repent. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can cry out to the same covenant-keeping God that Jonah cried out to. We thank you, God, that you are the one that keeps your promises. But where we stand, we have seen more clearly the salvation that you have accomplished. We see more clearly than Jonah sees. And we thank you, Lord, for uh, not only the, the new life that's been given in Christ to us, that we could walk with you. But Father, we thank you that you continue to work in our lives and in our hearts. And we would pray, God, that these things would be evident in our lives and in the life of our church. God, that there would be that sense of, of humility, uh, a hungering for your presence to come on on Sunday morning, Lord, to to worship you not just going through the motions of worship, but really meeting with you, the God that we would live our lives this week, Coram Deo, before the face of God. Uh, Lord, we would hunger and thirst to know your word. Lord, that uh, we would just want to hear and to sit at the feet of Jesus like Mary did. Lord, that there would be a sense in which it would be like you prayed to the Father in heaven, not my will, but your will be done. And Lord, may we have a hunger and thirst that the nations would come to faith in you. Lord, is, may we be like beggars who are bringing other beggars to bread to show them of the hope that comes only to them. We thank you, O oh God, and know that these aren't just pie-in-the-sky things, but these are true realities. And so, God, we pray uh, with great hope, looking forward to the day when you will do this work and continue to do this work in our hearts. We thank you and pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.